0: Petra Kaleev is directing a new musical theatre adaptation of the novel My Brilliant Career at Monash University's Alexander Theatre. Uh, new musicals are a rare beast, uh, but they're also like buses. Uh, they come along kind of in packs, because I know that uh, opening in Perth uh, in, I think, today or tomorrow, uh, there's another new Australian musical, uh, which has been described as a hip-hopper uh, taking kind of... Uh, Opera elements and hip hop to create uh, a musical about the ice e- epidemic. Uh, there's another new musical um, on at Belvoir up in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Kind of so, kind of Petra, is is there something in the zeitgeist at the moment that kind of new Australian musicals are just popping up everywhere, or uh, uh, what's I, going on?
1: I think there must be. Uh, it's a. Uh, I, I think often there's there's this, this, this um kind of collective energy, and there's been. Uh, a lot of in uh investment and interest in new australian uh, th- Theatre in the last few years, and I think that musical theatre just takes a little bit longer because of all the other elements that bring it together to sort of uh, appear. So when it does, they kind of all appear together because they've all been sort of probably in development or um, in process for so long.
0: Now, my brilliant career has obviously been in development for a while. Uh, yep. it, now, uh, it's uh, the libretto is by Dean Bryant. The composer is Matthew Frank. They've worked on a, a number of musicals prior to this, having met at Whopper. Yes. Kind of years years ago. Uh, how long has this been in development and when did you come on board as director?
1: Well, this is actually, uh, we're really lucky to have, uh, uh, be working with Monash uh, on this project. So Monash have paired with the Pratt Foundation to uh, support this new musical. And uh, they got the commission at the end of last year. So this actual process has actually been quite condensed. Wow. Uh, I was brought on in uh March this year, and we've just been basically. I got a first draft then, and we've been working solidly on it since then.
0: Now have you directed musical theater before because i know you've you 've uh, done main stage theater independent theater, student theater, and so forth
1: yeah i 'm not really known as a musical theater director, but that being said, the first play I ever directed well the first thing I ever directed was a musical, so it 's always been something that I love and something that i do it 's just not something i 'm known for
0: okay good i 'm glad to know that <laughs> so uh, for people who aren 't familiar with my brilliant career let 's talk about kind of i mean it's a it's a, a legendary Australian novel.
1: Yeah, it's an Australian classic. Yeah, uh, written by Miles Franklin, uh, a semi-autobiographical, uh, and she wrote it uh, in the early nineteen hundreds. So it's set around there, and it's 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 a uh, uh, quintessentially Australian. But she's the. A female writer in the 1900s. It's it's uh, and it, not only that. It's an incredibly progressive story for its time. And staging it now, we still feel its resonance and its progressiveness even today.
0: It's interesting that uh, the author's uh, given name was Stella, but she chose yes. to wrote und- publish under the name Miles, which is a very Ambiguous gendered name. It, it sounds much more male, which uh, obviously, at the time, getting a book published uh, as a woman, as a female novelist, was presumably a huge challenge.
1: I think so. Yes. Uh, I don't. Yeah. Had she not named herself Miles, I don't. I, I don't think the the uh, novel would have been printed.
0: Yeah, it, yeah. The publisher would have just gone, "Oh, it's a piece of light entertainment by a
1: woman." Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And even so, Henry Lawson, who wrote the, writes the foreword for the novel, says that uh, it, You know, it's quite good apart from the flights of uh, emotional fancy and the uh, over-descriptiveness you know so uh yeah th- th- there's still the uh, uh the commentary about its uh, femaleness
0: so the plot let's talk about the the yep. plot because uh, we have mm. a uh, a young woman uh, sibella growing up on a on a drought-stricken farm her fa- yep. father's a drinker uh, and
1: where from there so uh, she wants to write but she's in this poor place with her parents and she can't. She gets the opportunity to go spend some time with her very rich grandmother and aunt. So she goes uh, there and then she's sort of beset by all these men who are interested in her and one in particular, uh, they fall for each other and uh, so we see this uh, Burgeoning 16-, 17-year-old romance uh, uh, evolve. Uh, but what happens is, uh, a spoiler alert, uh, is that uh, uh, Sybilla says, I want to write. And so she says no to uh, love so or to marriage rather yeah, than love. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, I mean – first published in 1901, a Mm. a, a landmark book then, still, as you've said, a hugely significant Australian novel now. Do you think this will become a hugely significant Australian musical? Because... The great Australian musical is something that, a phrase like the great Australian novel that gets bandied around uh, for a while, there have been relatively few Australian musicals that have really kind of broken through and become landmark significant works, often works are staged once or or twice and then forgotten.
1: Yeah, I think that this has the potential to because it's a work of of such heart and such soul. Um, I think, you know, when I think of this musical, I think of things like uh, Boy From Oz or Priscilla that... It's, you know, at its heart, there's a real sense of um, um, Australian-ness. There's a real warmth to it. And it's an engaging story. So I think it has the potential to, for sure. But then I'm biased. I'm directing it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, uh, it also helps that you're a dramaturg as well. Yes. So working on a very new piece of work to kind of sculpt the story and bring that to the fore. Talk yep. to us about how you've been working kind of uh, with kind of uh, uh, Dean and Matthew, to to kind of shape this new work?
1: Yeah, so... uh, I've we've ac- uh, actually had a dramaturg as well, Anna okay. Barnes, and the, the the four of us, I guess, have been working together on shaping and moulding this. And it's been uh, independent script work, like it normally is with her new new work, and then uh, getting the piece up on its feet and and realizing what can go, what can stay, what needs to be amplified, what needs to be sort of reduced uh, to make it resonant for an audience today. It's not that we're taking anything from the, um, we're uh, diminishing anything in the novel itself, but we're making those strands of the story really pulse for an audience today.
0: So I can imagine from, I, now I've not read My Brilliant Career, yeah. but from what you've been saying, for example, the the moment in which uh, Sybilla decides that she will reject marriage in order to focus on her writing, yeah. perfect moment for a song. yeah. <laughs> It's those moments of heightened emotion that translate so beautifully in musical theatre.
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, And there are so many of those moments throughout the play that the desire I think as well um, to communicate what it is not to fit in the world is I think a really strong through line in this play and to kind of stay true and authentic to the person that you are and not try and mould and morph yourself into the person the world wants you to be and that gives us plenty of opportunity to break into song.
0: Talk to us about the the musical themes and styles of the work. I mean, given that the novel was set in nineteen uh, was published in nineteen oh one, and is presumably set uh, even earlier. Yeah. Kind of uh, have the has the composer. Decided to use musical motifs of that era, or is it a more contemporary work?
1: It's definitely a more contemporary work, so that's part of its um, resonance today. I think we've taken this story; uh, they speak in a, a sort of a hybrid 1901 uh, esque slash today sort of a mix of uh, um, uh, idiolect, Id- 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 I guess. And uh, uh, but the music is rocky and poppy and catchy. Mm. And you'll definitely leave uh, humming the tunes.
0: If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with uh, Petra Kaleev, who's directing uh, a new musical theatre adaptation of My Brilliant Career. It's on at the Alexander Theatre at Monash University in Clayton, and I'll give the uh, dates and details and uh, ticket prices and booking details and so forth shortly. But, uh, Petra, given that this is being developed at Monash University, that means the students at Monash have the opportunity to work on the production, learn. But we are talking about... a a professional main stage production.
1: That That's correct. So we've got a professional, a core professional cast supported by the students. So uh, some of the students have uh, so, uh, key supporting roles, but uh, most of the students are chorus. And we're, we're joined by um, musical theatre uh, stalwarts like Anne Wood and Natalie O'Donnell and James Miller and incredible new talent. in Our protagonist, uh, Louisa Scrofani, supported by um, Andrew Caution and Alastair Kingsley, so I feel really lucky to have such a strong and uh, incredibly talented um, principal cast.
0: Now, making musicals in Australia is hard work. Yes, uh, and particularly as you said, with the condensed time frame that this one has had. Yeah, but you seem quite ambitious for the for the production and for its future.
1: I definitely, definitely. Um, I think that uh, as I said before, it's such a work of heart. And uh, it captures something and, uh, you know, I I was, I know I'm biased, but I was sitting there in tech yesterday thinking I've got um, goosebumps on my arm because the text and the music is coming together so beautifully.
0: Now, uh, as we said, this is supported by the Jeannie Pratt Musical Theatre Artists in Residence Programme, so developing yeah. out of that. Uh, and uh, which great to see philanthropists putting money behind the development of musical theatre because it costs millions to get shows up, kind of, kind of the, the big main stage musical theatre productions that you might see playing, that Melbourne and Sydney battle over, for example, for the exclusive rights. Yeah. Kind of, making musical theatre is not cheap. So to see uh, a work of scale developed, a new Australian work of scale, is really exciting.
1: Yeah, it's really exciting. And it's so important to also have the time to develop and the support to develop work like this. Uh, It's really important to not only uh, the work itself, but to a canon of Australian voice when it comes to musical theatre. So we cannot thank them enough.
0: So My Brilliant Career is on from the 18th until the 25th of October at the Alexander Theatre, Monash University, Clayton Campus. Tickets are... very affordably priced, particularly compared to the big commercial musicals, uh, ranging from 20 to $39. Uh, and uh, booking details, uh, you go to www.monash.edu forward slash MLive. And MLive is the, uh, the, the kind of name of the overall kind of performance program out at the uh, Alexander the Theatre. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and some really exciting work being programmed out there. So, right. yeah. Patrick Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you for uh, chukas to, to everybody involved with my brilliant career. Great.
1: Triple R.
0: Just earlier in the program, we were talking about the process of adapting a book, My Brilliant Career, into a new Australian musical. Now we're going to talk about another book which has been adapted into uh, a stage production uh, by Unicorn Theatre and Untitled Projects. It's being performed in Melbourne as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival. The play is called The End of Eddie and its director, Stuart Lang, joins us in the studio now. Stuart, a very good morning to you.
2: Hi, Richard.
0: So uh, this is a a stage production based on kind of a a coming-of-age story about a young man growing up in regional France dealing with kind of uh, toxic masculinity, with homophobia. Uh, When did you first discover the novel and why did you want to help bring it to the stage?
2: I first read the book when it was translated into English, which was only uh, two, maybe three years ago. Um, and uh, I, I had a very personal connection to the uh, book when I read it. It's about a young working class uh, boy, uh, realising that he's gay in a community where uh to, to announce that is just not possible uh, I, and there was something that chimed with me as a young working class uh, uh, gay teenager growing up in Glasgow uh, and I think that wars uh, political take on that situation uh, was just so gripping that as as soon as I'd finished it, I realised it would make great theatre. Uh, uh, and actually, of, of, of all the shows that I've tried to get on stage, this was one of the easiest sales. Everybody that I went and talked to about it was, yes, we want to be involved in this Uh so so from one point of view, it was a really, really uh, uh, easy, easy project to get going. But then also, I imagine, a difficult
0: project to get going in terms of the adaptation. The novel is written for an adult audience. And uh, you and the companies that have made the work have created it originally for kind of a, a younger, more teenage audience. Talk to us about the sensitivities involved in taking sometimes adult themes, knowing that the original intended audience who are going to be seeing them are going to be younger
2: uh, yeah that, that that was certainly a challenge uh, my long term collaborator Pamela Carter uh, who is a playwright worked with me uh, on the show she did the adaptation and uh, And it was Pamela's idea that we should focus the show on a young audience. And I think that part of that was imagining ourselves at the age of uh, 14, 15, 16 and thinking, wow, if we had seen uh, a theatre of this material, it would have made a huge, huge difference to us as teenagers. So so that was really the uh, impulse to uh, uh, sort of target a younger audience with the show. And when we talked to our colleagues at the Unicorn, uh, the the Unicorn were very interested in dealing with this uh, uh, sensitive subject of uh, kids under 16 having sex uh they People i know the sex <laughs> oh my i would never have known it, it is this crazy situation where we all know that that happens you know that kids do have sex but there there's very little material that uh deals with it and and there's very little material that uh deals with it in a uh in a sort of positive way Uh, I think that Edward's very clear that the sex that happens in the play is not abuse, uh, that it's something that uh, as a teenager that he embraced, it made a huge difference to uh, finding out who he was. Uh, We're presumably
0: I, talking about a teenager having sex with an adult, given that you've raised the word kind of abuse.
2: No, no, not at all. It's okay. teenagers having oh, which, ha- having yeah, sex with other teenagers. Consensual
0: teenage sex then, or
2: fine, healthy, consensual and normal. Teenage, consensual teenage sex, which, which interestingly, I, I don't know what the laws are in Australia, but uh, in the UK, that is an illegal act. Uh, Under the age uh, of which, 16. Which uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it is always assumed that uh, uh, kids having sex with each other is illegal. Uh, I think it's very, very rarely uh, uh, prosecuted. prosecuted.
0: I think the laws here, thankfully, are a little bit more relaxed. I'm not an expert being yeah, kind of 52 yeah, rather than 14. But, yeah. yeah. Now, in terms of staging the work, uh, as well as being aware of those kind of sensitivities, one of the things I'm intrigued by is because it deals with homophobia uh, and, and kind of aggressive behaviour, to to present that on stage uh in a way that is not potentially traumatizing for a young audience as well uh, i'm intrigued to, to talk about because i know that uh the use of television screens on stage to kind of present not only a mediated view, world view but to allow a character to spit on somebody without actually being spat on on stage is kind of one of the the techniques and tricks that are being used here?
2: Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, we approached it as a storytelling exercise that rather than uh, act things out in front of the audience, we wanted very much to... uh, do, do the show's storytelling and and we use the televisions as start of our as part of our uh storytelling process uh the the sex that's depicted in the book is uh described rather than acted out in front of us uh so so uh yeah I, I, it is not a realistic uh, uh, presentation of the story. I mean, we're not working with uh, uh, young actors. We're, we're, our, our actors are in their early to mid-20s, so it's not like we have uh, 11-year-olds and 14-year-olds. So it really is about telling the story rather than uh, uh, realistically portraying something on stage. Uh, and two actors on stage uh,
0: kind of telling the story to us. And one of the the reviews I've read from uh, the the season uh, in Edinburgh in uh, twenty eighteen comments on the fact that the actors are cheerily providing footnotes and textual analysis as they go. Uh,
2: I I think that is, um, but because Edouard wrote his book for an adult audience, uh, uh, and in many ways it's a work of. Uh, sociology rather that he was studying sociology uh uh uh, while he was writing the book uh so we really wanted to help a younger audience understand what was going on uh so it suited us to explain what was going on at at certain points to to help help a younger audience engage with it
0: now, uh, your direction uh, has been described as supple and inventive. Uh, that's uh, a quote from uh, the Dublin Theatre Festival season, uh, a review in the Irish Times by, by Peter Crawley, uh, whose review also notes that in, uh, he said he was intrigued by where the stage production departs from the novel, using theatrical licence to invent tender and consoling scenes. Talk to us about that aspect of the work. Um, Without going into spoilers.
2: As, as one of the actors says in the play, uh, th- theatre is uh, uh, an imaginative space. Uh, uh, and there was something, uh, 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 an alternative uh, uh, scene that one would hope that, the young Eddie could have with his father, and we thought it would be interesting to actually act out an 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 imagined scene of what their uh, relationship could be, but but we very much uh, uh, declare that in the in the stage show that this isn't how it happened. But wouldn't it be nice to think that a young gay boy could have a. Uh, a more tender, meaningful conversation with his uh, uh, ultra-masculine father.
0: We're talking about the production The End of Eddie, which is on at the Malthouse Theatre as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival. I'll give the booking dates and details in a moment. My guest uh, is the play's director, Stuart Lang. Now, um, uh, in an interview uh, I think published just a day or two ago in the Daily Review, it brings up... uh, the fact that the play is not just about kind of burgeoning gay identity and teenage life and homophobia, but class issues are explored uh, quite clearly and powerfully as well. Uh, And there's uh, the character's awareness that, um, as you put it, uh, that he uh, embraces the idea of being a class traitor in order to escape the, the violent world that he lives in. There's Class has become – it's interestingly that in a couple of works I've seen in the festival this year that class is being commented on more openly than it has been for many, many years. It, it feels like class awareness and class issues have been pushed aside in debates for a while. How important is it for you, for example, that class is talked about clearly and articulated powerfully in a work like this alongside identity politics like homosexuality?
2: Uh- I mean I think that class is part of identity politics. Uh I, I'm from a working class background and for me that is very important. Uh, I think that Edwards politics uh are, are uh that the specifics of it are that traditionally we think of uh the left as being the politics of the working classes. But recently, because uh, in Europe, the left-wing politicians have been so keen to attract the middle, middle class voters, that they've abandoned the working class, that they don't really care about the working class anymore. Uh, and, and in France, for instance, this has left a vacuum and it's been very, very easy for the ultra-right to go into working-class communities uh, uh, and speak on their behalf. Uh, I, and I think that that's the very particular political situation that Edouard's exploring in his book.
0: In terms like uh, kind of a potent and powerful production, We ha- and just quickly uh, before we wrap up, uh, the fact that uh, we have a multiracial cast as well uh, is also a, a very deliberate decision with this
2: production. V- very deliberate decision. Uh, Pamela, the writer who adapted the book, uh, has Chinese heritage. Uh, and my my first thought when I read the book was that it would be interesting to do it with two actors uh, and that that would be uh, uh, an economical way of approaching it. But because of Pamela's heritage, she just said, I'm not writing a play for two white boys. I've, I've seen too much work on stage that is dominated by uh, uh, young white actors. Uh, so, so that was one aspect that we took very seriously. And also the Unicorn Theatre uh, is a, a, a central London location and that is a very very diverse community. That the schools that the Unicorn Theatre are serving are uh, racially very diverse communities, um, and it felt uh, yeah, it felt more appropriate to uh, to to try and speak to those communities. Uh, I, I think that. I think that Edouard is writing a book that is not of interest just to young white working class men living in the north of France. Uh, I, I think he's a much bigger thinker than that. Uh, uh, and that felt like a way for us to embrace a, 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 a bigger vision.
0: There's so much more in The End of Eddie we could talk about, but we are, alas, out of time. Uh, Stuart Lang, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. It's been an absolute pleasure. I wish I'd been able to see this play when I was a 14-year-old gay teenager growing up in country Victoria. It, uh, but I also look forward to seeing it uh, now as part of the Melbourne Fest- Melbourne International Arts Festival as well.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot in it for adults as well. Yeah. Thank you so much, Richard.
0: The End of Eddie is on at the Cooper's Malt House in the Merlin Theatre. It's on now until the 20th of October. Um, Thursdays through Saturdays, 7.30pm. Saturday there's a 2pm performance, Sunday at 3pm. It runs for one hour and 30 minutes with no interval. Tickets... From $49. Uh, you can book by going to www.festival.melbourne, where you'll also find out more information about the production. Stuart, again, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app.
0: Now, my next guest has joined us. In the studio, as I was saying at the start of the program, I was questioning whether I can call Anthony Hamilton the new artistic director of Chunky Move, given that he's been in the role for several months now. But Token Armies, which is on as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival, is his first work for the company. So, Anthony, are you still the new artistic director or do you feel you've settled in now?
3: Oh, yes, I I would say I'm still the new artistic director. I think you've got to give people a, a year, Grace, don't you? Uh, to settle into the job. And certainly, as you say, it's the first work under under my directorship. So, yep, still feels pretty fresh, but no, settling in, settling in.
0: Why did you apply for the gig? Why did you want to be the artistic director of Chunky Move, which is kind of one of the most significant contemporary dance companies in Melbourne, certainly, if, and one of the leading companies in Australia?
3: Uh, well, um, there's a number of reasons. I think, you know, first and foremost... Um, I have a deep connection to the dance community in Melbourne. It's a it's a community I'm a am I'm, I'm a part of and I I'm passionate about. And Chunky Move is is an important part of that community. And um, you know I have you know been making work for for many years now. And I really felt that I was keen to you know expand. Uh, the potential of what I could do with a company in order to sort of facilitate possibilities for the art form that go beyond what's possible in the independent sector and also to probably look at sort of stretching I'd say what the company is able to do in terms of its service to the dance community and that's a very very important part of what companies in the arts need to do they need to understand who they serve and what what role they have for their for their audiences and also for the artists who work in in the community.
0: Well particularly when it's an established company like like Chunky Move, uh, the, as we've seen, uh, the access to funding for independent artists and small to medium companies drying up, uh, to, to the bridges that a company like Chunky Move can build with independent dancers, emerging choreographers and so on become increasingly important.
3: That's correct. Um, you know, I can say that my career was well and truly, um, you know, supported by companies like Chunky Move. In fact, Chunky Move was one of the companies where I really cut my teeth as a choreographer, and was able to, you know, be really very well supported to, to, you know, create large scale works um, when I was an independent artist. So, is it?
0: Am I right in thinking that it was actually a Chunky Move that made you move to Melbourne in order to work with them?
3: Yeah, that's right. Actually, yeah. So, so I. Um, I was a dancer back in 1999 uh, through to about 2001 with the Australian Dance Theatre in Adelaide, um, already uh, very interested in making works, you know, dabbling in in the creation of, of works. But I did become quite enamoured with the work of Gideon Obazanek, the founding director of Chunky Move, whose work, if you don't know it, was at the time, you know, considered to be quite kind of... You know, irreverent and kind of wild, and taking up very interesting spaces. Public
0: spaces, for example, in uh, nightclubs or in arcades.
3: That's right. In fact, th- those works that you're speaking about were probably the ones that really sort of um, signified a, a quite a shift in the in the modes and um, potentiality of kind of this art form and where it could exist and how it would really tap into different kinds of audiences as well. And, and it was just, you know, it seemed kind of like quite renegade and, and a lot of fun. And I was, you know, young and impressionable and <laughs> wanting to be a part of it. So it just seemed very exciting.
0: Now, Speaking of exciting token armies, the first work you've created, kind of as the artistic director of of Chunky Move, how long have you been considering this work? Because no no work springs into life kind of uh, fully formed. It goes through stages of development. Before that, it goes through stages of imagination. Uh, how long have you been imagining the ideas that have come to fruition mm. in token armies?
3: well that's <clears throat> that's a very good point um this work token armies has been in the imagination for a good five years. I would say I even you know sort of tried to road test a couple of the ideas on smaller commissions with other companies um you know as as you know you would know i suppose like you know a lot of the artworks or dance performances that are that 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 one makes, um, there is a language that feeds across and intersects between those works and threads of, of, um, of thematic or, or, or even technical ideas that you want to explore that do that do kind of yeah thread across different works so uh, yeah it was a, it was quite a few years ago but certainly the scale and nature of the work and the, and the elements involved in this work which includes some pretty significant um, elements that are not just solely around the choreography and the dances um, required quite a lot of um, pre-production work so I sort of liken the the creation of token art as to somewhat more what I would imagine and I can only imagine a more cinematic process where there's a lot of actual world building, a lot of pre-production development into the design of the work and and then it's about having almost like a, a fully completed world that you can imagine and then populating it with performers after. And it's a very interesting process, and in a very different way, I think, of conceiving work. Um, dance work, I think, is often very studio-based. It's very much about exploration and experimentation in the moment. It's very much of the time that you're spending in the space. Whereas this is much more kind of pre-conceived um, way of way of approaching making dance work.
0: Talk to us about the importance of design in the work. Uh, there's a, a quite a detailed and in, uh, really enjoyable interview, I have to say, uh, that uh, Arts Editor at the ABC, uh, Dee Jefferson, uh, did with you, which is published online, where she talks about watching a a development of the work several weeks before the festival. Uh, And she talks about the, uh, I don't know, uh, face masks and machine-like costumes and monolithic black forms being dragged around. So there's clearly a lot of uh, design elements which uh, enhance the choreography, but also stand separate to it as well.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, from a sort of thematic point of view, one of my, my great interests is about how you know, the biological world intersects with the world that is constructed, that, that humans, you know, conceive and build around ourselves. And the the complicated, troubled, sometimes harmonious dialogue between like, you know, this biological form with this constructed world. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting subject to me and how, you know, uh, how culture and, and society is formed around these relationships. Um, and from a, but from a sort of, Technical point of view in terms of the construction of choreography as well, and the development of the the movement language. It's it's also a lot of fun and a lot of uh, it's very interesting to to find yourself tethered to an object, um, and and finding yourself. Um, extended in a, in a kind of, you know, in a very kind of cyborg kind of way. I mean, if, and when I say cyborg, I, even though I love science fiction, when I say cyborg, I must sort of, you know, be clear that I, that I mean um, any real extension of the body, you know, and, um, as soon as you pick up a stick and reach something that you couldn't reach with your own with your arm you've imagined the possibility of of your body being uh, extended through this apparatus and that's quite a leap to take i think as a as a species that we can we can we can find ways to extend ourselves and 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 that's only become you know more and more complicated over time um, and with with technological development you know like we, we we take it into the way that we communicate with people um, into the way we interact with our environment it's really fascinating
0: talk to us about your choreogra- choreographic vocabulary what will people see in the work what kind of movement and style and how much of it will echo uh, what people have already seen of your work if they're familiar kind of with the body of work you've created today
3: yes uh Well, as I said just before, I suppose one of the things that informs the choreography to the greatest degree in this work is this sort of being um, encumbered by all these elements, these physical elements that are sort of dragged along and brought on this journey with us through the work. So the performers are very much... Um, laden with many, many material things that they have to manage and organise and the work is very much sort of about that organisation of things and participation, that things will only work choreographically if everyone's involved. So this is really quite lovely um, work that's going on in the piece that, that involves cooperation, you know, so it's a, quite a nice reflection of, of ideas about, you know, what we'd like to see, you know, um, society being able to achieve. Um, so, choreographically, I would say it's certainly um, driven by this kind of this this work that needs to be done within within the piece. Uh, in terms of familiarity of choreography, I think I've jumped quite far to outside of the realm of cho- choreographic language that I usually explore. Which is, if you are familiar with any of my previous work, it tends to be extremely um, accurate. And you know, it attempts this sort of um, uh, quite yeah. It's dealing with accuracy and sort of this you know very very clear. Um Shape and form. Whereas, I'm as I, as I get more interested in new ideas, I suppose I let some of those things just let I let some of those things go a bit. And it's a bit more free form. Certainly, much more um, freedom of action from the performers, and actually a lot of um, developing the, the the movement language on the fly. So there is a lot of improvisation actually in the work as well. Uh,
0: if you've just tuned in, my guest is. Uh, Anthony Hamilton, Uh, we're talking about his new dance work, Token Armies, uh, which has been created as uh, uh, the first work under Chunky Move, uh, under Anthony's artistic direction. It's on as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival. Uh,
3: It features a a lot of dancers. I think you've got 23 dancers in the the work? There are 23 performers in the work. Um, Not all of them are strictly dancers. Um, One of them is myself. Uh, so I'm getting, uh, I'm getting a kind of real workout each evening. <laughs> I'm also, like, I'm probably, like, twice the age of most of the performers in the work. So that's been um, great to be involved. It is actually really lovely being involved in the work in that way and feel yourself to be embedded within the material language of the work and actually directing from the inside. It's something I've never really done before and it's a, it's a really interesting thing to experiment with that um, throughout the work, because of the improvised nature of some of these systems that we're, we're performing... Um, there is the potential to actually direct live, which is really, really, really fun, actually.
0: Now, it's also fun, I imagine, would be the opportunity to then collaborate with uh, an organisation or two, uh, Creature Technology, uh, the, the guys who made the giant King Kong puppet, for example. Yes. You've worked with them, got to put them into the, the collaborative process as well.
3: That's right. Um, I met with Sonny Tilders, who's the uh, creative director of Creature Technology Co., and as you say, they're quite famous for King Kong, Walking walking with with Dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, And so I I sort of came to them as as an independent artist a couple of years ago before I took up the role with Chunky Move with a kind of... Um, manila folder full of uh, funny little sketches and um, early design drafts of of ideas about the body being i guess intersected with these like objects um, and they were fairly um, primitive drawings they weren't really well too well defined. Um, I, I came back with some more fully, fully realized work, which I'd commissioned from a, um, from a concept artist who I, who I sourced, uh, through Instagram actually, never even met the guy, but, um, lovely, lovely guy. Peter Gregory, um, did some beautiful digital paintings of some of the things that we were trying to do and managed to, yeah, kind of, you know, seduce, uh, Sonny with these, with these drawings, got very excited about it and, um, yeah, really sort of dove deep into it. And I can't thank Sunny Enough and Creech Technology Co., all the artists and fabricators and engineers who worked there who really just made this a passion project and really, really got on board. Um, we had a great time working on it together. We had some hurdles, but it was, it was amazing, yeah.
0: And it sounds like you're having a ball.
3: It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: a review published uh, in Limelight describes the work as singular in vision, uh, a work that needs to be seen to be appreciated. An impressive feat in both ambition and execution. That's not bad for a for a, for a review. It's not bad. Yes, yeah. I'm quite happy with that. <laughs> and, well, I'm glad you're happy with the review. I'm also very glad that you're happy uh, at Chunky Move. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with the company over the next X many years. It's been around for 23 years. You're only the third Artistic Director in that time. Uh, and uh, the, work, the work created by the company to date has been innovative, engaging and exciting. And like I say, I'm looking forward to seeing where you take it.
3: Thanks, Richard. We look forward to keeping the, the legacy of that vision moving forward. We'll catch you in the studio
0: here again, I'm sure, in the future, talking about many
3: more works to come in the coming years. Thanks, Richard.
2: Triple
0: R. I'm babbling. I should stop. I should introduce my next guest, Mama Alto. Please save me from myself. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's always lovely to have the chance to chat with you. You are performing uh, in... Gender Euphoria, which is a celebration of trans and gender identity, and to my knowledge, is the largest ever gathering of gender-diverse performers in Australia in the one stage.
4: It is, and certainly the largest ever ensemble of trans and gender-diverse performers to appear on a a main stage context or in a major festival context, as far as our research can tell. But just in case, every time that we remount the project, I add another couple of cast members so that we can stay ahead of the curve. This
0: show is getting outstanding uh, responses from audiences. Fleur Kilpatrick uh, was on the show earlier talking about a, something like a the standing ovation that felt truly euphoric uh, yes. at like, the title of the show.
4: That's fantastic to hear. And the community responses, the press responses, the community responses uh, and the industry responses have really blown us away because we aimed with this project to create a space that highlights the joys and beauty and empowerment of being trans, of trans and gender diverse lives because we don't often get to see or experience representations of ourselves in culture and the media that touch on the richness of our lives. We hear a lot about the trauma and the struggle and the dysphoria which is certainly a big part of our lives, but where is the space for the euphoria? We wanted to create that. We wanted to create a beacon, uh, a rallying call for change, a symbol for hope. And uh, it's took off in a far bigger way than any of us expected. I think.
0: Now, the original season of Gender Euphoria was part of Midsummer Festival at Art Centre Melbourne, and uh, shout out to Daniel Clark from the Art Centre, who's currently up at QPAC in in Brisbane, who I understand helped kind of kind of bring the show into yes. being. Yes,
4: Daniel Clark, Edwina Lunn, also from Art Centre Melbourne, Daniel Angeli, uh from uh, Midsummer Festival. Maud, Davey and I had been, who is the director for our ensemble, we had been talking for about three or four years together about this idea of making a show about gender together. And as both of us found we had an increasing platform and increasing opportunities, we said we want to open this platform up to others and we started gathering like-minded artists and people Uh, of all different artistic disciplines, some who had been writers but not necessarily performers, from trans and gender diverse creatives, makers, theatre makers, singers, actors, writers, and started creating something much bigger. And uh, we originally talked to Arts Centre Melbourne as part of a different opportunity that Arts Centre Melbourne was just one of many stakeholders in. And uh, that opportunity was not the right fit for us we weren't given that but we immediately heard back from art center from Dan and Edwina they said we think it is such an important and such a beautiful project we're going to do it anyway we're going to find somewhere to do it and some way to do it and that's what we did that was over 2 years ago now and so we put it together for midsummer the response was amazing it was it sold out within a couple of days of going on sale for midsummer and uh which set us up for a return season. And then we looked around thinking, where is our return season going to be? And then along came Melbourne International Arts Festival and said, well, uh, we can do it, but let's put it in, a, in the famous Spiegel tent and let's go for a week, a whole week instead of just a couple of nights. And it has just been a joy to see and hear from community members who for the first time have seen people like them on stage, people like them given authority over their own stories, people like them giving giving them permission to love themselves and feel good about who they are.
0: One of the things that strikes me about gender euphoria, having and I've not yet seen it, but the fact that it is so timely uh, as a work kind of conversations around gender uh have become foregrounded in recent years there was a real sense for me i think back when uh going back over 10 years ago when Brokeback Mountain was released. So it was like, oh, my God, the, the mainstream entertainment industry is finally caught up with kind of gay culture. When is it going to catch, catch up with trans culture, for example? And there's a real sense over the last 10 years that kind of the trans and gender diverse community has kind of been more recognised. With that comes a backlash, uh, yes. which unfortunately kind of these – things do tend to go hand in hand it was only this morning i saw someone on twitter kind of proudly uh, stating that the only gender pronouns they would ever use were he and she because we can't change the english language uh to which somebody pointing out that they has been used as a as a, uh, a pronoun for individuals since at least the 1500s yes and all since the 14th century yes so and
4: you you regularly hear people come up with that debate, but the instant that someone has a party or goes into a restaurant and there's a mobile phone left on the table, someone left their mobile phone behind. It's actually quite an instinctive thing to use that pronoun, but... It's a double-edged sword. The media keeps talking about the trans tipping point. We're seeing more trans performers and creatives and people giving opportunities and platforms than ever before. We have Pose, we have Orange is the New Black, we have Laverne Cox, we have Janet Mock, we have uh, media attention, we have people making films about Marsha P. Johnson. But it's a double-edged sword because you never know whenever you're in a minoritized group, and I always say minoritized, not minorities, because that minority has a sense with it of being not normal when actually no-one's normal. It's just that some of us are oppressed, and so minoritized,
0: Which actively evokes the status of being... F- made a minority yeah
4: and um whenever you're from a minoritized group that becomes popular in in popular and mainstream culture you always wonder whether you are just actually being tokenized whether someone's exploiting your image and your identity and your personhood to make money or for some other cause you know this kind of thing so with this show we really thought well, we can take advantage of this moment of popularity, of being the next trendy thing that people can talk about around a water cooler, to actually platform what our lives are like and the richness, the joy, the beauty, and just the extreme excellence of the talent in our communities.
0: And the there is absolute excellence. The reviews for Gender Euphoria at the famous Spiegel tent as part of the Melbourne International Arts Festival, have been glowing. Uh, It's been described as liberating, joyful, poignant. And as you say, there's such a, in terms of art form representation, this is a really diverse show in terms of... uh, 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 I know that uh, there's, there's actors, there's singers, there's performers across a range of, of art forms and mediums. There's yourself, a gender transcendent diva, kind of. So uh, it really feels like a glorious show.
4: It is. I think it is, you know. I should be modest, but I'm feeling too euphoric at the moment, about halfway through our festival run, to be modest. I just feel euphoric. It is... It's something very special, it's something very triumphant and it's something about the messy gloriousness of humanity.
0: Mama Alto, Gender Euphoria is running until the 20th of October and performances are Thursdays through to Saturdays. I say Thursdays, normally actually Tuesday, but hey, there's no point in telling what's on on Tuesday and Wednesday. So uh, today, Friday, Saturday at 7.30pm, Sunday at 5pm, it runs for one hour, 15 minutes, no interval, tickets from $39. Book at www.festival.melbourne. It's on in the famous Spiegel tent on the forecourt of Arts Centre Melbourne. Mama Alto what's next for the show? Uh, can Have other festivals gone? Ooh, There's inter- a
4: lot of interest uh, and there are a couple of embargoes uh, for our upcoming adventures that I cannot yet tell you about, but you can find us everywhere on social media with Gender Euphoria Show and you'll find out as soon as we're allowed to tell you. I look forward to finding out more. Mama Alto, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.